Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from the Lancet Healthy Longevity. It's August 2022 and I'm Jonathan Blutt. This month, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Luigi Ferrucci from the US National Institute on Aging. Dr. Ferrucci's new comment calls for better care for older patients with complex multimorbidity and frailty. Although the past few decades have seen advancements in medicine and and aging research, why do older patients with multimorbidity remain a largely overlooked population in healthcare? And and how does a single disease model contribute to this? I think that we have centuries and centuries that uh, culturally and philosophically, we have been talking about curing single disease. You know, you have heart disease, you have kidney disease. And, you know, I remember my book, you know, when I was working and studying medicine, was divided in chapters. And so there was a chapter for the kidney disease and there had very, very little overlap within them. And so we know and we, we have been accustomed to prevent each single disease through different logics and to cure each single disease through different logics. It's mostly... This was happening because uh, of a younger population of patients. And so they really had one emergent disease and not many diseases at the same time. But as the population becoming older and older, I think the phenomenon of multimorbidity has become a lot more frequent and a lot more pervasive in this, both in, in the care community and in, especially in the in-hospital community. And so, you know, one friend of mine said that uh, the disease with the highest prevalence above the age of 60 is having two diseases. There's no one disease that is the most prevalent. The most prevalent condition is having two or more diseases. And so that gives you an idea. You have on one side a medicine that is completely organized based on single disease model. On the other side, the majority of patients that now occupy our hospital beds that are affected by two diseases. And, you know, I think that only recently society and medical society are starting to include in their, you know, guidelines something about comorbidity for one disease, but very, very seldom you have a mention of people that have one disease but other multiple multimorbidity. And, and the complication is that this multimorbidity, it's also affecting uh, the cure and the result, even when it is subclinical. So the patient comes to you with a heart disease, you cure the heart disease, and they may have underneath a pulmonary disease, a kidney disease, but because of the time that we dedicate to patients so small, you know, people don't realize that. Right, so, and then looking forward slightly, how can we capitalize on new technologies such as AI systems, to improve uh, the early detection and prevention of these multimorbidities and the subsequent care of patients with multimorbidity? I mean, I, I, I am not very optimistic that we will provide more time to physicians to take care of their patients. So our hope is really to make them more efficient, to provide them the tools so they can use those 10 to 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, to do more with the same type of effort. So I think that it's, here is the place where biomarkers, 
may become extremely important. And, and before I go to the biomarkers, uh, we need to address the question of uh, what we call the geroscience paradigm. So geroscience is uh, proposing a totally revolutionary perspective, which is uh, that the same biological mechanisms of aging are also responsible for modern disease. So we can, uh, by capturing uh, the rate of biological aging, uh, we can understand much more about pathology in the elderly, especially pathology in the elderly with complex multimorbidity and disability. And, and what, what is revolutionizing this uh, approach is technology. As always, you know, ideas and technology go side to side. And so why before, you know, physicians have been relying on the same uh, 15 or 20 biomarkers for many, many, many years. You know, the clinical tests that arrive in a piece of paper. Now we can measure thousands of those products, literally 10,000 of those products in few drops of blood. And I'm not saying something that is in the future. We already do that in research. You know, you send, uh, you know, much less than one milliliter of blood to an analyzer, and you get uh, 10,000 values, each one for the circulating protein. Now, there's also a lot of work that has been done to correlate these proteins to many different pathologies, to multimorbidity, and also to outcomes such as mortality and risk of disability. And we are finding that uh, these algorithms are extremely powerful to detect not only the disease that you see, but also those that you do not see because they're still subclinical. So imagine that uh, a physician, you know, you go to a physician because you have the pain in your shoulder, and the physician look at you and instead of only look at your shoulder, send a milliliter of your blood to an analyzer and the analyzer come back with these 10,000 values. And there is an artificial intelligence program that analyze these 10,000 values and warn you that there's something ongoing that you don't see clinically. But if you don't take care of it now, it's going to come up as a problem in the future. Again, we already know that this is possible. There's a little bit more research to be done. And of course, before we go clinical, this research should be more robust. But we already know that it's ongoing. It's going to happen. So, so I, I think that uh, that that's really will be the new medicine for the future. And, and uh, you know, protein is one. You know, there are many, many other biomarkers, you know, already... Uh, you know, epigenetic biomarkers are uh, used uh, to look at the effect of interventions such as nutritional intervention and uh, many other biomarkers are starting to be very important. One of them is metabolomics that I think is emerging as one that is extremely important. So to complete this answer, you know, we do know something now. We will know quickly enough to apply this clinically. But we know that will not be perfect. Imagine that these 10,000 protein results accumulated over time. 
And we know from electronic medical record this biomarker information, and we know what happened to these patients, and that an algorithm or artificial intelligence tell us more and more over time, tell us where we do wrong, where the treatment did not work, what treatment did work based on a certain pattern of protein. So by doing this, our ability to use this information will grow over time. And again, artificial intelligence is here to stay and electronic medical record are here to stay. So I think that, uh, you know, we need the will of, of probably the healthcare politics, but otherwise, uh, you know, the tools are already there. Mm, so coming on to some of uh, more of the challenges that this field faces, uh, we know that population aging will see an increase in older people living with multimorbidity globally and a corresponding burden on healthcare systems, especially in lower and middle income countries. So how can these new approaches to healthcare, particularly biomarker assessment and support by AI, as you discussed, be adapted to these low resource settings? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, if you do the projection of the multimorbidity and the healthcare cost that will be predicted based on what's happening now, based on the raising multimorbidity with aging, it's not affordable. It's simple. You know, we can't really afford that. So the only way we can deal with that is the hope that we can reduce the burden of disease and disability with aging. And so increase our, what we call health span. And so why I think that initially the power of the biomarker artificial intelligence will be extremely precious to be used in people that already have this multimorbidity. I think that applying this earlier in life so that we can do real prevention and powerful prevention will address the problem from the source, from the root. Reducing the multiple will eventually reduce the healthcare costs. I, I don't want to do only this. I think that uh, while we are applying this to improve the health of the population and increase the health span, we also need to take care of the millions of millions of people that suffer the burden of multimorbidity. But the two things are not opposed. And, and, and remember that, again, we are discovering from the life course epidemiological studies that uh, health start very, very early. We may not see it because there are resilience and compensatory strategy in place young people, but uh, what you do in your 20, 30, and 40 is going to be what is caused, you know, what will be your trajectory of uh, health in old age. And to finish this, uh, I would say that we need a new generation of physicians, of course, we need a generation of physicians that understand biomarker, a generation of physicians that understand the principle of geroscience. We need physicians that embrace the life course epidemiology. And of course, that also means education. You know, if you tell to somebody in their 20s that they need to do something now, so then when they're old, they're not going to be disabled, they don't believe you because that's not the culture. The culture is, uh, I'm doing whatever I want now because it doesn't matter. 
And, and, and so the cultural transformation, it's extremely important at the same time that we take care of these older people. And finally, as the gap between research and clinical practice will become increasingly relevant problem, what might be some strategies to bridge this gap? Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, I am, um, a, you know, an optimist, uh, you know, by nature. So I, I see the glass half full and never half empty. But there is uh, work that needs to be done, uh, you know, toward the realization of this that you may think to be a dream. And, and, and I think that uh, in order to accomplish this dream, we need to put together, you know, the physician, the clinician, and the researcher. I think that uh, there's a lot of intent, there's a lot of hope that this will happen, but uh, unfortunately it's not happening. You know, I, I, can, I, I, um, I go to many, many scientific meetings, uh, and uh, there are a lot of biologists that say, you know, these discoveries are so important that will impact uh, the clinical care of older people, but the physician that uh, may want to understand and to use those are not there listening. And then uh, there are the clinician, the geriatrician, the people in general that are taking care of all the people that go to their meeting and say, this is what we need. This is a question that you need to be answered. But there are very few biologists there that are listening so they can orient their research in that direction. What I see still two words that work in asylums. We need to realize the union of these two worlds. We need to make them work together. And, uh, you know, there are many ways that can be done. But one of them could be setting aside some funding for projects where clinicians and researchers need to work together if they want to be funded. There are many other ways. As I said, the the process is both technologically, cultural, but also imposed by the burden that epidemiology and demography are, you know, showing to us. Dr. Ferrucci, thank you very much. You can read the comment by Luigi Ferrucci and Ronald Kahinsky online now at thelancet.com. Thank you to Dr. Ferrucci and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With The Lancet Healthy Longevity wherever you usually get your podcasts.